Today's Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 to 7. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. This is the word of, the God, of our Lord.
New Testament reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Thanks be to the Word of God. Today's sermon is based on John 17, verses 17 to 21. Jesus prays, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, everybody. As Marco was kindly introducing myself, my name is Michael Wittmer, originally from Bern, and I bring greetings from Haruhi, my wife. We've been serving with OMF for nearly 16 years. Uh, I've been mainly involved in teaching the Old Testament and training prospective Japanese pastors. I also bring you greetings from River Life, uh, your younger international sister in Bern. I love international churches. I mean, don't we just sort of embody, you know, God's future kingdom as the global church? But as you know, probably as well as I do, international churches are not just tremendously enriching, they can also be challenging as different cultures uh, get together. And it always sort of raises the question, you know, when different Christian cultures come together, what kind of church does Jesus want? And uh, that's uh, exactly the topic we're going to think about together. In his farewell prayer, Jesus provides us not only with a model prayer, he also gives us a great vision of what kind of church he wants. Chapter 17 of John is unfathomably deep. I mean, whole books have been written just on, one, this, on, on this one chapter. And apparently one Puritan chaplain, Thomas Menton, pre preached 45 sermons only on that chapter. So in the next 30 minutes or 25 minutes or so, we will be just really scratching the surface. Let me start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, please grant that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts are pleasing to you. Should there be anything in my speaking that is not of you, help us to forget it soon. 
But the things that honor you, write them in our hearts and minds. For I pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me start with the story of two churches, Robert and Mary Smith. No particularly no particular allusions uh, are intended. Uh, a young couple were impressed by the good works of their local reformed church. The church provided valuable service to the community, providing shelter for the homeless, teaching German to the non-natives, organizing visits to the senior citizen home. And Robert and Mary wanted to once go to the church and find out what is behind all these good works. Initially, they were a little bit surprised. A fairly small group of elderly people met, singing traditional old hymns that were quite difficult to understand. But they were interested in the teaching, and the teaching was sort of ranging between God's global goodness, drawing some secular wisdom, and uh, a growing group of the church was quite keen to discuss the gender issue. And they were actually quite happy to welcome same-sex marriages into the church. But the other half of the church was quite against it. They couldn't quite say why. It was just more tradition. And there was one ecumenical service a year. The financial resources were primarily donated to charity works abroad. The Smiths couple respected their good works, but they sometimes felt a bit uncomfortable when the members were talking fairly critical of the vibrant, lively church down the road, shall we call it New Life Church. They were referring to them as, oh, they're sectarian, they're fanatics. And Robert and Mary also felt increasingly frustrated that they learned very little about Jesus and the Bible. So when they once received an invitation from the church down the road, uh, New Life, let's call it, no particular illusions intended here either, they were surprised about the difference. There was a vibrant worship, lots of young people. The sermons were very much based on the gospel. Missionaries were sent to the other side of the world to plant churches. And initially, the Smiths found everything quite exciting and attractive. But Mary was sometimes a little bit taken aback when the pastor was speaking negatively about women leadership. Or they overheard arguments about how to interpret the book of Revelation. Some people had this idea, another part, and they, they ended often up in arguments. Mary and uh, Robert also realized there were hardly any charity work going on. And the pastor explained to them, well, their mission, our mission as, as New Life Church, was mainly converting people and planting new churches. Well, Excuse the caricature of these two churches. Um, I think in Switzerland, but also in England, where we used to live for quite a while, 
many churches would sort of roughly fall into one of those two categories. And uh, by giving those two stereotypical pictures of churches, I, I'd like to raise together the question, what kind of church does Jesus really want? And as I said uh, in his prayer, he gives us a wonderful vision of what church Jesus anticipates. Time doesn't allow us to go into the context of Jesus' intercessory prayer, but it's placed in the Bible when you look at chapter 17 during Jesus' farewell discourses. And so often in the Bible, people, before they depart, before they die, they pass on to the next generation what is really important. So let me just underline right at the beginning that Jesus basically prays for four things. Firstly, that God would preserve the church in his revealed truth. Secondly, that God would sanctify his church. And thirdly, that the church would be missional. And finally, that the church would be one. I hope that we soon realize that this is not just a vision for the church as a whole, but it actually applies also to, to your and my spirituality as we think about uh, these four aspects Jesus is praying for. It's a long prayer, so if you once take the time in your quiet times to read through the entire prayer, you will see that you can naturally divide it actually into three parts. The first part, Jesus prays for himself. And then in the second and longest part, he prays for his disciples. And in the third part, he prays for those who come to faith through his disciples. And we'll be mainly looking at the second and a bit uh, uh, into the third part where Jesus prays for his disciples. So let's jump in at verse 11, because that prepares for the heart of the prayer um, as we were reading from 17 to 19. In verse 11, Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them, that is the disciples, in your name which you have given me, that they may be one like us. Let's think for a moment about Jesus' address. He calls God Holy Father. Holy Father. Combines God's holiness with his love, his fatherly love. There was once a famous Swiss theologian, Emil Brunner. He said, it's impossible to describe God with only one adjective. You can't just say God is loving. You would have to define love. You can say God is love, loving, and holy, or he is gracious and just, or he is kind and serious. There's this beautiful tension um, within God's character of love and holy. And this um, prepares really the heart of Jesus' prayer. As I was reading before in verse 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Only a holy God can sanctify. Your word is truth. What does this mean? Well, 
you know as well as I do, sanctification is really a lifelong process. It has a relational component where we turn from everything that hinders us from God to, to God. And it has a, a moral component where we try to keep our minds and words and acts pure for God. But interestingly, in verse 19, it really says that we cannot do it on our own because Jesus prays there, verse 19, I sanctify myself for them, for us. Jesus does something that makes us holy, that sets us apart. In context, it's not quite clear what that actually means when Jesus says, I sanctify myself for them. But in the Gospel of John, and of course in other parts of the New Testament, we know that Jesus sets himself apart as a holy sacrifice for us, so that we can be set apart for Jesus. So, if you or I allow ourselves to be called out of the world, out of Egyptian slavery, if you like, out of our bad habits, we allow God to call ourselves out. But at the same time, we are also called back into the world. What does that mean, being sent back into the world? We are already in the world, aren't we? And the one former Anglican bishop, Michael Ramsey, explained it like this. We must enter the minds and hearts of those to whom God sends us. This means that we have to put ourselves into the shoes of those who worry, to understand their worries. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of those who are joyful, to understand them, to, so that we can actually come alongside them and speak relevantly and meaningfully into their lives. I guess a number of you are from the UK. Uh, as I said, we used to live in England for quite a while, first in London and then Durham. And I can't quite remember, I think it was in London, when there was once a, a, an evangelistic campaign with posters saying, Jesus is the answer. Until some smart person, smarty, <laughs> uh, wrote on the random posters. But sorry, what was the question? And I, I think there is some deep truth in that. We need to understand um, what the gospel is about. We need to understand the problems of the people to actually communicate the gospel meaningfully into people's life. And I, I'd like to illustrate that with another example from Japan, where we've been serving for the last 16 years, as I said. A number of years ago, a, a missionary, a Westerner, preached an evangelistic sermon to a small Japanese gathering. And at the end of the sermon, he was making an appeal, saying, accept the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior and have eternal life. And of course, nobody responded. That's pretty typical for Japan. Um, but at the end of the sermon, an elderly Japanese lady came up to the missionary and saying, sensei, teacher, and said, I don't really understand what this Jew who died 2,000 years ago has to do with, 
with my weaknesses. And besides that, I don't want eternal life. I just want to be where my ancestors are. You see, uh, to her, the idea of living forever with a bunch of foreigners who speak Japanese not always that well, um, you know, not, don't fully understand the culture, that was not attractive to her. And through this example, I think it just underlines that we really need to understand the people we are ministering to, to understand their hopes, their fears, their dreams. And of course, of course Paul was one of the greatest missionaries because he was very good at this. He knew how to preach the gospel to the Jews, but he also knew how to preach the gospel to the Greeks. And if you read your New Testament carefully, you will realize that he preached the gospel, he explained the cross in different ways, according to people's background. And of course, for us in Japan, then it raises the question, how would Paul have preached the gospel in Japan? Or how would he have preached the gospel in your context? A Japanese friend told me then sometime later that, you know, rather than preaching eternal life, in Japan it's actually much more attractive to preach eternal peace. You see, peace, I mean, you, you can easily derive that from the New Testament, from the Old Testament as well. Um, that is not neutral. Eternal life for Japanese can be quite neutral. You know, life in Japan is hectic. I don't want eternal stress, you know, but eternal peace. That sounds good. And through this, I just really like to underline you know, that we should be careful how we present the gospel, that it's actually understood as good news to the people we are talking to. So Jesus prayed for truth. He um, uh, prayed for the mission of the church um, and for the holiness of the church. And we come to the fourth characteristic, unity. Let them be one. It's actually a theme that runs through the entire prayer. Jesus is looking to the future and he sees how people will respond to his disciples and become believers. And so he prays in verse 20, I pray not only for them, that is the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now this is quite important, I think. Jesus prays for a unity that is based on the apostles' word. In other words, on scripture, on the New Testament. I think it's for this reason that we really should know our Bible. So that we know what unity is really supposed to be based on. And I don't know about you, but it sometimes makes me a little bit sad that in an age where it's never been easier to consult Bibles on the internet, there are almost countless of good translations out there. And yet with this information overflow, people hardly read scripture anymore. There are so many things that sort of compete for our attention and time on the internet. And I think it takes real discipline at times to just close a website, even if it's helpful, if it takes time away um, from 
our time with God and his word. And my point here is, of course, unless we know God's word, we don't really know when it's worth to fight for unity. But Jesus does not only pray for a unity that is based on the apostolic faith, on the word, but also for a unity that is rooted in the Father and the Son. In verse 21, as you, Father, are in me, and I are in you, they should also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays for a unity that is deeply rooted in the triune God. And here sometimes the picture of a calm lake comes to mind. And if you throw a pebble into the, into the lake, you can sort of visualize how the, the waves sort of go out from the center, you know, from the triune God to us, to our spouses, families, communities, churches, and it doesn't stop there, to the global church. Being part of an international church is a great blessing, and it's certainly an inspiration to me. But as I said, uh, it's also a challenge. At River Life, our church, more than 30 different nationalities meet weekly. Looks pretty similar. You're probably slightly larger than we are. Um, and that's, of course, tremendously enriching, but it can also be challenging. And, of course, when we look at church history, there have been tensions right from the beginning in the New Testament, Act 7, when the Jewish Christian and the Greek Christians had their struggles, and then it goes on, you know, all the way through the Great Schisms, to the Reformation. And according to the uh, World Christian Encyclopedia, there are now more than 34,000 different um, Protestant denominations of course, many work together, but many don't. And that must be a scandal in God's eyes. You know, the Catholic, we can criticize them for some of their dogmas, the infallibility of the Pope, venerations of the saints. But in one thing, they've beaten us, I think, and that is unity. There is one body and one spirit one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And I think the closer we are to the Trinitarian God, the more robust is our unity. So let me just summarize. According to Jesus' prayer, the, the local and the universal church should be shaped by truth, holiness, mission, and unity. Now, I think it's not just a matter of those four characteristics. I think it's also important how these four characteristics relate to one another. Because it's so easy that these four characteristics get out of balance. For example, we risk uh, protecting our unity at the expense of truth. As you know, in large parts of the Western Church, there are long discussions, and it will, I think, increase over the next years, how to handle the gender debate. In other parts of the world, it's the women issue, sorry, the women leadership issue. In Japan, especially in the evangelistic church, 
It's whether Christians and non-Christians can get married. You see, in Japan, there are many more Christian women than men. To what extent should unity be protected or promoted at the expense of biblical teaching? Of course, there remains a certain tension. However, as we've seen in Jesus' prayer, unity should be based on God's word. And that, of course, raises the big question, what belongs to the non-negotiable truth where we can fight for it and go to the barricade? And what is not absolute central truth, might be more tradition or culture? Does worship style belong to the non-negotiable truth? Probably not. How about how God created the world? I mean, there are many people who believe in a seven-day creation of God. Other Christians, also evangelicals, they believe more in a theistic evolution, that God worked through a long time uh, creating everything. In my humble opinion, of course, these are important questions, but I can still worship peacefully with somebody who has a different understanding of how God created the world, as long as we agree that God is the creator. So what is the absolute center of the non-negotiable truth? Well, in Jesus' prayer, one factor is that the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of everything, the great I am, is not just an impersonal power out there. He is our holy father. And I think for that, I would go to the barricade. You know, our faith and beliefs in a holy, loving God. And the Gospel of John, actually, John states in chapter 20, verse 31, what is the purpose of his gospel? And he says that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that salvation is in him. So I think there is another absolute central truth that we should um, put as the base of our unity. And that salvation, eternal peace, if you like, eternal life, is uh, only in Jesus, through faith, through God's grace. I think these are the absolute central truth. But it's a sad fact that many churches are very legalistic about questions of faith that are not absolutely central. They've become cold, fundamentalistic, legalistic, a little bit like the Pharisees. They have lost Jesus' vision for unity, love, and grace. Still, other churches have become committed to holiness to such a degree that they lost the touch with the world. They've forgotten that Jesus also sent them into the world. In the past, it's the monastic movement, you know, when people withdrew from society. Maybe some megachurches are a little bit like this nowadays, where you can, you know, be in a Christian kindergarten, Christian education all the way up, all your social life happens among Christians, and you're in a bubble. And of course, the other extreme, perhaps that's a danger for many Swiss churches, is that we are so integrated into society that there's hardly any difference anymore between Christians and non-Christians. Jesus, of course, is against both of it. He called us out, but at the same time, he sends us in. 
Other churches are so preoccupied with missionary activities that they don't realize that nobody will believe them if they don't reflect holiness, love, and unity. So I think it's, it's not just about these four elements. It's about a balance of those things. And these thoughts, these final thoughts, are actually not from me. They're very helpful. I found them, and they, I've, I've borrowed them from John Stott. And uh, John Stott, the great late uh, theologian pastor from London, he, he pleaded for BBC. And he was not thinking of the British Broadcast Corporation. He was pleading for a balanced biblical Christianity. And I found it very helpful. But as I've been thinking a little bit about Jesus' prayer, I think maybe I prefer IBM over BBC. <laughs> what do I mean? I was saying it's not just the balance. I think it's, it's how these four elements are interlocked, are they woven into each other. So when I plead for IBM, I'm not pleading for the computer company, but for integrated or the interrelated biblical mission. What were the four elements again? Just checking whether you're with me. I hear unity. I... Holiness. Love, <laughs> holiness, love, mission, and unity. Yeah, love and unity. Let me finish with a word of prayer, but before I finish, let's just become quiet before the Lord and think about our own spirituality. Think about our church. How do these four elements how are they reflected in our spirituality? How are they reflected in our church life? Is there need for some adjustment? Let's bring these things before God and I will then finish the message. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three, perfect harmony, perfect unity, we worship you. Lord, we are aware that we have fallen short of Jesus' vision, both as individuals and as a church. Please forgive us and help us. But thank you so much that you, Lord Jesus, are interceding for us. You understand us, our weaknesses, and we pray that you will protect our feeble faith, that you keep us in the truth, and that you help us to grow in holiness, and that we become more and more one in spirit and truth. By the power of the Holy Spirit, grant us that we can make Jesus' prayer priorities also our priorities in prayer and life. 
so that your name, Lord, will be glorified and the church, your body, may become more and more what you want it to be. One holy Catholic apostolic church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.